Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. J.D. Frizzell. J.D. is the Fine Arts Director and Director of Vocal Music at Briarcrest Christian School in Memphis, Tennessee. He was the winner of the 2007 Integralis Composition Contest and has music published by several publishing houses. His high school a cappella group, One Voice, is a Sony recording artist and was the winner of the Macy's a cappella Challenge. He is an active presenter, clinician, adjudicator, and guest conductor. J.D. Frizzell, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. It's my pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, I want to say congratulations on the birth of your second son. I think that is fantastic news. Thank you. We are uh, we're enjoying it a lot, and as all parents know, uh, we're getting very little sleep, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah, having been through the process a couple times myself, I'm always interested in some of the adjustments that new parents go through. So have you found this new addition to your family has been affecting your work? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I would say a roughly 50% productivity drop. <laughs> <laughs> the one kid to two kids is a really big jump. Yeah, yeah. Six to seven is not so much, but one to two six for to- sure. <laughs> I was going to make the joke, with them, but you made it before I could, so that's great. <laughs> All right. So you and I used to teach fairly close to each other. When I taught at Germantown High, you were up the road at Briarcrest. Um, I felt like I knew you fairly well, but as I was thinking about it, I don't think I ever asked you where you were originally from. You're not from Memphis originally, are you? No, I uh, was born in Indiana, and then I moved to Atlanta around kindergarten, Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. And so I grew up in, in metro Atlanta, right? Metro Atlanta is a very big area. And I lived there my, my whole life until I went to college. Okay. And then what brought you to Memphis? Uh, a job. <laughs> I, I, need, I was finishing my master's degree uh, at the University of Southern Mississippi. And um, it was 2008. And if you remember the, the stock market crash of 2007, oh, yeah. I mean, no jobs were open. Schools were on hiring freezes, um, and I had come up to Memphis for like a general interview with uh, Shelby County Schools, and um, it got canceled. Oh. And so I was like, mm, I'm already up here. And uh, a colleague, friend of ours, Eamon Eady, told me about an opening at some private school. He's like, it's kind of out there, but um, you know, I think it's a good school and might be a good position. And I was like, well, it's a job, so I'm going to yeah. check it out. And it turned out to be, you know, an amazing fit for me. And so here we are in Memphis 12 years later, and I'm still at the same place. Well, that's fantastic. I know they're grateful to have you there. So did you start as a singer? You know, I didn't. I, I've i always enjoyed music, but when I was growing up, I played sports and did, like, the brainy things. Like, uh, I did academic decathlon and scholars bowl and geography B and all of that kind of stuff. And then... Um, I joined the choir at my high school my sophomore year because uh, some friends at a party, they heard me sing like along with like some song and they were like, hey, you have a good voice. 
And then my friends were like, dude, there are a lot of girls in choir, like way more, <laughs> way more girls than guys. And I thought, well, I haven't had a lot of luck with, with uh, the ladies. So um, I like singing and that sounds cool. So, you know, I'll do it. And little did I know that signing up for that class would change the rest of my life. And, and it did. Uh, I had a, a really amazing mentor, uh, my high school choir teacher, Allison Crossman. And she she inspired me to change the whole course of my career. And I ended up uh, taking like piano lessons and saxophone lessons and voice lessons. And uh, I felt like I had to catch up because all of my friends who were really good at this had been doing it since they were really young. And, um, you know, I I had a skill deficiency for sure. So um, that's that's my journey. And it just went on fast forward from then to, to college. And here we are today. Is that when you started composing as well? Or did that come later? You know, I think I've always been drawn to the you know creative part, um, you know, the compositional element. I mean, even early on, when I only knew like a few chords on the piano or guitar, and that's, you know, I knew very little music theory, I was still writing things, I was still writing songs. And um, I started my first composition, so to speak, was an arrangement of head, shoulders, knees and toes. And I did it. I did it my junior year of high school. And I still have it somewhere. You know, it's like it was like for essay, TB choir and piano. And it was about 30 seconds long. And looking back on it, it's not as terrible as I thought it was. You can turn it into a full choral fugue now. It, take that original it, idea. <laughs> I I could sure uh, maybe uh, maybe once I get all the kids into school, we'll be, there you uh, go. We'll, we'll have some time to do that. So, what kind of music were you listening to as you grew up? So before choir, I mean, I just listened to pop music, and but a lot of pop music. I mean, wide range of of pop music, and um, I. Once I joined choir and started to be exposed to certain things, like maybe we would sing something by Handel, and I was like, this is really different and kind of weird, but I like it, but it doesn't sound like any music I've ever heard before. And so I would go to the library, and I would check out CDs, and of course this is aging me, but I would check out CDs, and I would listen to you know a lot of Handel. I remember falling in love with the Messiah. And I mean, I would try to find the best recordings of the Messiah and things like that. And um, I I sort of went down that rabbit hole. You know, you listen to the Messiah and then you find out that like Handel wrote like even more challenging kind of out there music. And then you find out that, wait, there's other there are other people that wrote music like Handel who aren't Handel. And you start listening to those people and then, you know, in the choir, we would sing something by Beethoven. I was like, oh, well, this is cool. This is like Handel, but on steroids. And so I, you know, <laughs> would listen to Beethoven. And of course, I didn't understand the historical con- context of any of these composers. But I mean, I was literally drinking from the fire hose as a teenager. And it was like this whole world had been opened up to me sonically. And so between, I don't know, sometime between like my junior year of high school and then college, I mean, I listened to hundreds, if not thousands of, you know, classical, in quotes, um, albums. 
And that really broadened my horizons and sort of opened up my own compositional language as I really started to become serious about composing, um, you know, in my undergraduate uh, in college. And every time I heard something that I liked, you know, like a, a chord progression, a an instrumentation, you know, whatever it was, I would go to the music library at my school and I would check out the score. And if they didn't have it, I would request it, you know, via interlibrary loan. And this was before the internet had everything. Now, now you can basically find anything you want. And so I would just sit there like anxiously waiting. Like I remember when like Ligeti's Luke Saturna, I got the score in for it. And I was like, I can't, you know, opened it up. I was like, whoa, I have no idea what's going on here, but I can't wait to try to figure it out. I would uh, take the scores and if there was something really cool that I couldn't just, you know, sort of dissect myself, um, I would take it to my theory professor, Dr. Brumblow, and he would sit down and he's, he'd go, well, you really aren't ready for this and you really probably won't understand it, but I'm going to explain it to you anyways, because you're going to drive me nuts until I do. So <laughs> he would, he would, he was very patient and he would do this really great thing because um, I, I didn't really have a formal composition teacher at, mm -hmm. at the school. Um, and there was no one really there that was willing to, to teach that. And so Dr. Brumblow really stepped out and made himself sort of my, my composition teacher. Um, and he, he taught me by um, giving me things to, to listen to. And then I would bring him things that I wrote. And he would say very little critically about those pieces but he would just sit there for a second and he'd sort of like scratch his neck and then he would go okay and he would write down a couple of, of pieces and he would say he would slap him down on the piano and he'd go go listen to those and come back and talk to me and then I would do that and I would understand the lessons that he was teaching me you know maybe he was teaching me about about form or maybe he was teaching me about like you know, uh, writing, you know, efficiency of language or something. Um, but there was always a lesson in what he was teaching me. And so obviously I think that was a little different than a lot of people have, you know, been taught. And so I think in that way, I had to become my own, like, arbiter of quality and my, you know, I, I would say a lot of us as composers are, you know, would call ourselves our own biggest critics. But the sieve, right, or the, the filter through which any of my compositional decisions go is very thorough. And um, I, will, I will explore a number of options both in my head and then at the keyboard before I write anything down. And I think that I owe that to the way that I was taught how to compose, which is from this really experiential perspective and so much of it, too, wasn't about, like, what do you put into finale and how does that, you know, how does that sound? It was a, well, what does this sound like first? Oh, I like this piece. Let me go look at the score and see what that what that is. And that just slight adjustment in perspective, I think, has played a big part in uh, my harmonic language that I use and, you know, other elements of my composition that I try to use to make myself have sort of a distinct voice because that's, I think it was a challenge today. There's so many yeah. of, so many of us writing in, especially the choral realm. And 
Um, everyone writes, not everyone, 98% of us <laughs> write in a way that is some kind of free pandiatonicism, right? And um, it's really tough to define your own distinct, unique compositional voice. Uh, you know, you if you write a cluster, somebody, everybody's like, oh, well, you know, you're just ripping off Eric Whitaker. <laughs> and you're like, well, I mean, other people wrote clusters before Eric Whitaker. Ah, just shut your mouth, you know? Like, <laughs> no, they didn't. Um, but I mean, it's hard. Like, he he is such a great example of someone in our field who really firmly established this is my voice this is my own unique style and when you hear anything by him whether you like it or not you know it's him and i think that it's it's a rarity you know most of the rest of us you can listen to our piece of ours and go okay well i mean that could be from any number of thousands of composers and uh, so that to me is the challenge now that i take from that part of my teaching, you know, when I was in an undergrad in college, uh, is to continuously put that filter of voice upon myself when I'm writing. And instead of just going, do I like that as the ultimate arbiter of does it make it to the page? There's an additional step of do I like it? And is it the most me thing that I can mm -hmm. write here? And that has become more important to me as I've gotten older. Yeah. So speaking of students and teaching, you know, uh, do you encourage your students at Briarcrest to compose and arrange their own music? I do. I, not a lot of them have. Um, I think part of that is that students at my school, and I think a lot of students at many schools now, are very, very busy. And um, a lot of my most talented, able students um, at a private school. So a lot of them also are in a number of other musical ensembles. Um, and they're, you know, they play like two or three sports. And then, you know, every child now in high school has two hours of homework a night. So not a lot of them uh, compose per se. A lot of them do write songs. Um, and a lot of them produce those songs so you know in a way i guess you could say they're composing they're not in the traditional you know uh classical ensemble sense uh but you know they're going into some kind of of daw and you know whether it's pro tools or logic or whatever and they're creating sounds and they're tracking instruments mm -hmm. and you know writing songs and putting them out on spotify so <clears throat> that does happen i mean we uh, my instrumental music director here at Briarcrest, Michael Parsons, who is a, a real innovator in popular music education, especially from the instrumental side. And I know you know Michael uh, as well. He, um, We have a studio now that we opened a few years ago, and it was his idea. And I was like, that's a fantastic idea. Let's go with it. And we built this studio out of the old choir room. And now it is full all day, every single day with students who are writing music and recording music. And I mean, it's all originals too. They're not covering other songs, which is what, I mean, honestly, that's what I did in high school. Mostly right. it's, you know, you, you hear a song on the radio, you learn how to play it and you know, you, you, you hope to serenade a, a lady or two, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, 
rinse and repeat. Uh, for me, it was a lot of boys to men and like in sync and Backstreet Boys. It's it's embarrassing for sure. That's right. For I, me, it was everything I do, I do it for you. That's oh, my, Brian, yeah, Brian Adams. Right yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I think the challenge as you know, an educator, music educator in 2020, is to meet students where they are and to help refine their craft wherever that is and wherever that passion is. And so it looks a little bit different at our school because we do have, our students are very busy, but they're also really into the popular music education um, groups that we have. You know, we have a, an acapella group, One Voice, and then we have a, a couple of um, instrumental music ensembles that are you know popular music related. And so they're writing original music and they're writing up the parts for all the instruments and they're tracking all of those parts. And, you know, we have um, audio classes where they can learn how to edit and mix those, you know, those tracks together in the studio. So um, it is definitely non-traditional for the classical musician, but, um, you know, that's the path that we have forged with. And, uh, you know, it has been wildly successful with our students. And I mean, I think that's the name of the game when it when you're working with teenagers it's can you engage them in skill-based musical activity and you know from there they can go off to college and explore you know all the stuff that we explore you know as a music major um, but if you can hook them in I mean I think that's that's where the magic is yeah I liked what you said about meeting them where they are that really is the sort of the challenge in in our in our time. So I want to change gears here for a second. So for your dissertation, you analyzed a choral cycle of Estonian composer Velio Tormis, uh, Nature Pictures. Please forgive me for not attempting the Estonian name. I, I appreciate it myself. <laughs> uh, do you find that such close study of another composer's works influences the way that you think about composing? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I... I was drawn to Tormis's writing before, and obviously that any of us who've gone through a doctoral program, you know, you, you're going to spend a lot of time with whatever it is you choose for your dissertation topic. So the advice I was given is you may as well like it. Uh, so I really <laughs> liked Tormis's music. And as I studied it, one of the things that I really admired about his writing is how efficient it was. There was just no wasted material anywhere and every movement had a unique character to it um, there never seemed to be even an extra note it was like it's like he was always playing that old game show like um where they say like you know i can name that tune i think it's called name that tune i can name that tune in five notes you know and then like well i can name that tune in four notes and of course what that actually was was like seconds of the piece that the band would play but um that's splitting hairs but that that was the, the game show do you remember that game show are you yeah. old enough okay good i don't feel as old now um so i think about name that tune a lot because so many composers if I that I work with and and I try to do this a lot um, not not only with my students but a lot of students in the area um, who will send me their music and you know I try to give them feedback and even not only young composers like that that I'll work with but even established composers um, the the biggest criticism I have is that I don't think that they're always as, as efficient with their writing as they could there's a lot of 
I just call them extraneous notes. And so the focus of Tormisa's ideas and the efficiency of that writing were really, really impactful on me. And so as I finished that dissertation, I noticed that the music that I wrote after was just less noty. <laughs> yeah, it just it had it had a greater efficiency. It had a a, a better focus compositionally. And um, you know, I'll look back at some of the pieces I wrote before, and it's not that you dislike them, but you think I may have written that a little bit differently if I had written it today. Oh yeah, definitely know that feeling. So in addition to choral music, I know that you also write for other ensembles, such as orchestra, symphonic band, chamber ensembles, solo instruments, etc. On your website, you also have a collection of pieces that you have written for handbills. Do you have a handbill choir that you write for often, or did you in the past? I did in the past. Uh, when I was an undergrad at Southern Miss, uh, I was in a group called Carillon, and it was probably one of the top three handbell ensembles in the world at that time. And I mean, Carillon went all over the world performing. I mean, Japan, Korea, all over Europe, all over the United States. And so um, I enjoyed handbells. It was a different thing. It was like an opportunity to play an instrument in an ensemble. And I kind of missed that. Uh, I was a choral major and I didn't have time to do anything with band or with my saxophone. So um, I played in the handbell choir and I was like, they make really good music. I've never seen a handbell choir this good before because you know, most of them are in churches and they're usually, mm-hmm. you know, amateur musicians. Uh, but through that choir, my director, Dr. Smith gave me the chance to write for the group. And it's, it's very different than any other ensemble I, I had ever written for. And so that was actually my first foray into getting pieces published uh, was in the handbell world. And that was so important to me. And I think, you know, so many young composers get tied up in that same idea of like, I I haven't made it until I get a piece published. And I mean, any published choral composer will tell you that like, you know, once you get a piece published, the allure quickly fades away and you realize (laughs) like nothing has really changed here. Um, And so, but that was, but that, that, confidence is so important that you know that validation from somebody else that says your music is worthwhile your music is worthy of other people buying it and it's worthy of us spending time to edit it and publish it and put it out there and so that was really where um, I got my start as a composer was you know in handbells so um, while I don't have a, an ensemble to work with anymore um, I had some really encouraging and helpful uh, mentors in the handbell world who sort of in, um, worked with me as a young 20-something to figure they, – they taught me how, as a composer, to find a niche and you know look at publishing companies and, and know what a publishing company would want to publish and also what would sell uh, because – not everything that we write, more than one ensemble is going to want to play or sing. And I think that was a really valuable lesson for me to learn as well. Um, at some point, I wrote this arrangement of a hymn tune. It was um, uh, For the Beauty of the Earth 
but it also quoted this is my father's world okay so it was like a, you know it's a mashup right and i didn't think anything of it i wrote i wrote it for um the i think like a church choir or something and oh no this is when i was working with um a, a guy named john benke um and he he ran one of the biggest handbell publishing companies at the time he was the editor and i told him my idea and i said you know these two hymn tunes and he was like oh well i looked at the catalog and we don't really have any of those settings that are that are current that are selling so this really might fill in and and this is a general piece that can be used any time of the year i think it'll do really well let me see what you got so i wrote this arrangement and it ended up being the best selling handbell piece that year hmm. and I remember him calling me and he was like, JD, I'm sending out royalty checks this week. And I think you're going to be very, very happy. And I was like, wait, what? Because look, you know, I mean, any composer listening to this knows that usually you get the royalty statements and you're like, okay, cool. Um, we can order pizza with this. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, five or 10% doesn't add up to a lot unless you, um, you have a lot of copies sold. So anyways, I, I remember getting that first royalty check. Um, to this day, it's still by far the biggest one I've ever gotten. And, you know, it's like, wow, handbells. That's pretty, that's pretty wild. So I, I still occasionally write for handbells. Um, the handbell community um, is full of a lot of really wonderful people. But I barely have time to write anything i even want to write anymore so yeah. um i have not written hand for handbells for a long time but i think i have some really good stuff out there for handbells <laughs> if you if you have a handbell choir check it out all right i've got one more question before we take a quick break uh, on the movable dough listeners facebook group i asked my listeners to ask questions that they might like to ask a composer and so i've got one for you uh, from trevor he says what has been the most memorable response to your music Um, I wrote a set of pieces towards the end of my graduate degree. Um, and it was a, a set by a, a child poet, Hilda Conkling. She wrote all these poems between like the ages of like eight and 12 and her mom wrote them down. It's this really imaginative, uh, visceral poetry. And I set three pieces to her texts and the university of Southern Mississippi, um, the, the Southern Chorale premiered those pieces and i remember not only was the reception I, I went to the performance and i sat in the audience and i felt like i had been transported to another planet just by the performance it was some of the most adventurous writing i've ever done and the choir was incredible and it genuinely took the whole audience i, I looked around at the end and everybody was like kind of going nuts. And of course, you know, as a composer, I was sitting there like with my gut, you know, just like in my throat, like nervous <laughs> and like listening to every chord and like, is that happening the way I imagined in my brain and then whatever. <laughs> uh, but by the end, I had stopped thinking that way. And I just literally was floored, like emotionally taken somewhere else. And... Uh, the the set ended and I looked around and, and I, I realized everybody else had been taken there too. 
And I think that was when I realized like that was, that's my job. You know, that's the responsibility and privilege as a composer that we have is that anywhere in the world, you know, our work could be transporting people even for a moment to a place that is, you know, maybe better than what they're currently experiencing. And so, um, I'll never forget that feeling. And, um, every time I write now, I think about like, can I provide an experience that is that impactful and meaningful to not mm-hmm. only like the singers, but the, the, the audience. Thank you so much. So after this brief break, we'll have a chance to talk about and listen to some of JD's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with JD Frizzell. So let's start today with And I Can Sing for SSAA Choir and Piano. So I love the melody of this piece, especially on the refrain after building to slightly crunchy moments. You resolved that and sing and sing. It was it was beautiful. Can you talk to me about this piece? Uh, what sort of ideas were in your mind while you were writing? Sure. So this was a commission and they had chosen the text. And I mean, every composer will say like the text, if you get a good text, it's easy to write. Um, and if you don't, it's really, really hard. And this text made it so easy to write. And the the refrain was just what struck me. And that was what I wrote first was the, the and I can sing. And I made it repeat sort of like a like a chorus of a of a pop song because it was the emphasis on that idea. Like all of these things happen that the text talks about um Basically, when you face problems in your life, you always have your voice. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, you can still sing. And I think that's something that is universal. I think any person, any culture, any background, any language can relate to the idea of using their voice as a, as a means of expression, as a means of escape um, in, in a hard time. And so... I tried to convey and capture that feeling for um, for the composition. That's awesome. Well, let's take a moment and we'll listen to And I Can Sing. Thank you. 
Next, let's go to your setting of The Lamb. This text by William Blake has been set many uh, by many composers through the years. Little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? I'd like to listen to your setting before we talk about it. So, J.D., what were you trying to express through this setting? It's hard when you set a text that has been set so many times. And I know you've done this as well. Um, It was a challenge because you don't want it to sound like somebody else's setting. And you have all the settings that you've heard (laughs) in your brain. 
So it's it's really, really challenging as opposed to taking a text that has never been said or that you've never heard. Um, the lamb, you know, is a is about Jesus and and you know as a baby, right? And it's a it's a gentle idea, right? The idea uh, of um, something that's very precious and very small. And of course, I have a a six week old at home. And all parents can relate to this idea that it's such a fragile, I mean, a, a newborn is so fragile and they're, they're so helpless. And there's this mystery and there's this wonder and awe when you hold that, that baby. And um, so I, I, I wanted to capture that in the setting. Um, and I didn't want it to be too... Um, too rough or too angular or too too dissonant or, or but it also you know it was about the it was about holding you know the, the birth of of Jesus right so it's an infant deity right what a dichotomy like what a challenge to try to capture both the grandness and the smallness of something like that and so um, I set it in um, a minor key. Uh, I made all of the lines really accessible and mostly very stepwise. Um, and you know, I made sure that the harmonic language was also very listenable and approachable, but not not too standard, not something that um, would make it seem like too quotidian, like something that could happen any day. This is This is the birth of you know, the God of the universe, right? It, it's, it needs to be special and it needs to have this reverence to it. And there's something about, um, natural minor as a, as a scale, as a, a, a sort of mode to use for a composition that has that sense of wonder and awe and yet simplicity to it. And so, um, you know, that was the approach that I had with the piece. You know, I find your faith distributed generously through your works. How would you say that your faith influences your writings? Oh, thank you. Uh, that's that's very kind of you. Quite a compliment. Um, it's it's hard. I mean, I think for me as a composer, it's often the way I can most accurately describe my faith. Mm-hmm. And I think while other composers might understand that. Uh, I think people who who don't might be a little bit confused by it, but I assume most of your listeners um, are at least familiar with with the idea of composing. So, um, I would say that like anyone who is writing or doing something creative, you're trying to most honestly express yourself, and I think regardless of whatever the text, whatever the setting, whatever the the ensemble is um, that idea we talked about earlier where I'm always trying to show my truest self as a person and trying to convey my sound as a, you know, my, my sonic brand as a composer. Um, I think if I'm doing it well, that's going to come through and hopefully my faith in addition to you know, maybe my personality and you know, who I am in general, um, comes through whatever it is that you're listening to. Excellent. 
All right, we're going to move to another work for SSAA. This is Life to Come, this time accompanied by piano and oboe. So this is the middle movement of a larger work. Could you tell us about the commission for this piece and about the piece as a whole? Yes, so this was a commission for the opening of a new music building. And the text, it's for it was for the Mississippi, um, Mississippi, I want to say this right, University for Women, right? MUW, Mississippi University for Women. And I chose a text with uh, the commissioner, whose name was Doug Browning, a good friend of mine. Uh, he, we, we chose this text, and it's by a poet from the early 20th century who wrote with a male pen name, basically, so that she could get her work published. And I thought that that was really cool because this is for, you know, this is for the Mississippi University for Women. And um, they really, they thought that was, was quite apropos as well. Um, but the text of, of it was, was powerful. And it's basically this like epic poem telling this huge tale of, of music and, and beauty. And um, the middle movement uh, became my and the person who commissioned it and everybody else's favorite. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the birth story of This Is Life to Come. All right. Well, let's take a listen to This Is Life to Come with text by George Eliot slash Marianne Evans. Thank you. 
And let's end today with your Magnificat. So you state online that this is your first major work. So why a Magnificat? What drew you to that uh, to that particular text? Well, I wanted to write a major work, and I knew that I would need some structure to it. And of course, doing something that already has a set text sort of helps as a composer, right? You you have mm-hmm. an outline of here's here's this these are gonna be your movements. Like <laughs> and I think as a composer, it's helpful to have more restraints. I mean, that's sort of a Stravinskyan concept, right? To to have, you know, more restraints, you can be more creative. And so um I was writing for my choir and the White Station High School choir. We were combining for a Christmas performance, and this was the first time that we were going to do a performance with a professional symphony orchestra. <clears throat> so we had rented out GPAC, which is the big performing arts center in our area, and I was like, wow, I have this opportunity to not only conduct, but like write something for a great choir and a symphony. And so I had a reason to write this. And I mean, as a composer, you know, it's... It's hard to write something in a vacuum and just listen to it played back by virtual instruments. But when you know that you're going to get a great performance of it, it's way easier to to dig in and write. And so um, Christmas, obviously, Magnificat um, is, you know, a Marian text. And uh, that was really helpful to have like, OK, great. So I want to write a piece for Christmas. I want to write a piece that has sort of a set structure. The Magnificat is is just that, right? It's this Latin text. Yeah, based on based on, you know, a biblical passage from Luke, if I remember right. And so, you know, there it is. And people perform Magnificats at Christmas. So it worked out really nicely to to set it. Um I think now in you know 2020, it was 2012 when I wrote the Magnificat originally. I think now I would have probably tried to find a more contemporary text um Mm -hmm. i've just found that as i become more of my own true voice or most honest voice that i write more like i want to sound when the text is a little bit more contemporary if that Uh makes sense it's hard to it's harder to write things that sound sonically like 2020 when the text is something that was written a really a long time ago and you know, it is in a language like Latin. So that's just a conscious decision that I'd probably do differently. But um, I still felt like that Magnificat. I, I go back to it, um, and I'm actually in the process of reorchestrating it. I have never felt really secure as an orchestrator. Um, I never like what my orchestrations end up sounding like, and that's just me being sort of a being honest and um, putting myself out there. And now people can listen to something of mine and be like, no, that orchestration (laughs) is not very good, JD. Um, But I'm learning and I've actually, I've been working with a, a friend of mine who um, actually does like film scoring and um, he is just incredible at it. So I'm not only learning from him, but I'm having him set some of my pieces you know, to, to orchestration. And so over the next month, uh, he and I are going through the Magnificat and we're completely reorchestrating it together. 
and I'm, I'm really, really excited about it. Um, and I'm, I can't wait to, to have, you know, a new finished result. Um, but you know, that's kind of why I wanted to, um, talk about it today with you because this is a piece that is not only my first major work but it's from a long time ago and now you know I have found that the only reason I haven't you know performed it or even like put it out there to anybody else to perform since then has just been that I haven't been pleased with the orchestration I think the lesson for myself and other composers is, you know, a piece never has to be finished just because it looks nice and it's in finale and, um, you know, or it's printed on a piece of paper, uh, you know, it can be reprinted. And, um, you know, that that had been holding me back. And so I'm really, really just thrilled to be able to take this major work. And I think this reorchestration that we're going to do is going to make it so much more um, powerful and effective to, to audiences. And I'm, I'm excited about hopefully, hopefully a lot of groups performing in the future. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's listen to some highlights from JD Frizzell's Magnificat.
So JD, what are you working on now besides the reorchestration, or is that sort of your main project at the moment? Yeah, that's my main project at the moment. Um, you know, having a having a six week old and a four year old really right now is is limiting to what I can do outside <laughs> of work. Um, I have some pieces that I've been writing that have been designed for um, basically diverse ensembles. Um, so the idea is that these pieces or these arrangements can be used for a combination of remote learners and hybrid classroom settings and then like limited in-person settings. And I started doing these back in August when I realized that a lot of us were going into really uncharted waters as choral music educators. And so um, I've been taking either pieces I've already written or composing completely new pieces that are designed to have flexible voicings. So, you know, a lot of us have three tenors in one class and then four sopranos in another class and eight altos that are, you know, at home connecting through a laptop or whatever into class. And that can make it really, really tough to to create a product that sonically is pleasant to anyone. And so I've been doing these pieces that are set up to be successful. They're they're set up in a way that they're they're gonna sound good. Doesn't matter how many of whatever voice part you have, they're gonna sound good. They all have professional orchestrations and um it's just different. I've never done anything like this before. Um but sort of having to piece that puzzle together of like what is going to make these diverse ensembles in all these places feel successful musically. It's so important. People are missing this and kids are missing this. So it's a, it is definitely not like any other projects I've taken on. Um, but I've done, uh, I did one big project of it this fall. Um, I did a setting of Shenandoah and then I did a couple of Christmas arrangements for church choirs because a lot of church choirs are, are virtual uh, still. And then this spring, I'm going to do another one. Um, and hopefully after that, we won't have... My hope for everyone is that we won't have to do this anymore. Uh, so that that would that'd be the retirement of the series. Um, but um, it's definitely more of a practical approach rather than just a purely artistic one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, this is... I haven't really announced this anywhere yet. Um, but in about a month, I'm launching a new professional choir um it's very non-traditional and um think of like non-traditional music um non-traditional instruments non-traditional settings for where the concerts actually occur uh, it's it's really the culmination of 10 years of this idea of what i want musical experiences to be like for contemporary audiences and I'm just now finally getting around to being able to facilitate it. So I'm working with a number of collaborators around the country um, to put this idea into action. Uh, it's a part of my um, vocal music nonprofit uh, that I uh, am on the board of. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it, not only for just making really high level music, but also as a composer, of course, I'm looking forward to writing for them. Right, of course. Well, if my listeners want to learn more about you, where are you online? What's your website? 
Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Steve. Just go to www.jdfrizzell.com. And that's two Z's, two L's, right? Two Z's, two L's. That's right, Steve. Are you on any social media or anything? Yes, I am on all the social medias. So all of it is linked on jdfrizzell.com. But I'm basically the only JD Frizzell on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you go. Um, That is me. That's got to be nice. All right. Well, J.D., thank you so much for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thank you, Steve. It was an honor. My guest today was composer Dr. J.D. Frizzell. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough. If you would like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by J.D. Frizzell, Join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners, and follow us on Instagram at Movable Dough Podcast. If you have a recommendation for a future guest, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. Music